Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 350th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. This Urban Farm podcast is brought to you by Seed Bank Box, a monthly seed subscription for the urban farmer. Seed Bank Box is one great big seed surprise. Each month you get a shipment with 8 to 10 varieties of seeds, along with a description and planting instructions. Hit the Seed Bank Lottery. Get more information at urbanfarm.org forward slash seedbankbox. Today on our podcast, we have someone who wants school children to have better access to healthier foods. We're talking with Andrew Nowak about Garden to Cafeteria School Programs. Andrew is the former director of the National School Garden Program for Slow Food USA, where he was responsible for building capacity of nearly 150 slow food chapters to be partners in school garden projects. For 12 years, he was the co-director of Slow Food Denver's Seed to Table School Food Program and developed protocols for youth farmers markets and garden to cafeteria programs. Since 2009, Andrew has been the district partner for Denver Public Schools and Jefferson County Schools, helping to source local fruits, vegetables, and meats for the cafeterias to develop scratch cooking and salad bars in schools and the development of school farms to grow organic vegetables for school kitchens. Welcome to the show today, Andrew. Are you ready to rock the school garden? Let's do this, Greg. Sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I would be happy to, Greg. All my life, I've been connected to food in one way or another. And so it is a natural place for me to land. I've been gardening, growing food with my parents, you know, since a young youth. I started cooking professionally when I was 15, back in my hometown in Iowa. And food has always been an integral part. I did go off to college, got a PhD in psychology and neuroscience. Wow. But that academic career kind of fell short in the mid-90s. And I got back to my roots of culinary. 
my family landed here in Denver, Colorado in 2000. I wanted to get involved with my kids in their elementary school in our new community of Denver. So I participated as a teacher's aide in the elementary school, and I started to see a lot of food subjects coming up in their topics mm -hmm. every day, especially in reading. And I, I can remember in particular helping a second grade reading class in their new series, you know, the Boxcar Children, one of those early readers for second graders. Right. And there was a story about making beef stew. And a lot of the students had never even heard of beef stew before. So I said, well, we got to make something of this. <laughs> so I convinced the teacher to allow me to make beef stew with the children. And during that three-day process, we talked about where do the vegetables come from? You know, where do the carrots and the potatoes and how do they grow? And I wasn't getting a lot of awareness from the children. So I thought it'd be a great idea to also start a school garden. Well, the lunch with the beef stew lunch that we did for the kids was a huge success. And that led me into the school garden project. You know, for the last 17, 18 years, I've been involved with school gardens and in an organization called Slow Food. Many of your listeners may not be aware of Slow Food, but we are an inner international organization mm -hmm. that are trying to connect people to their food sources. Know your farmer, you know, know where your food comes from, grow your own food, gather around the table in the kitchen, cook together as a family, support sustainable agriculture, all those values that our grandparents grew up with. But, you know, in our fast food culture, we're kind of seeing disappearing these days. Mm -hmm. We use school gardens in the schools now to bring kids back to their roots around food. And, and in some cases, even introducing kids to fresh food because they're not seeing it in other aspects of their lives. What I know is that if somebody, especially Especially children grows something they're gonna eat it no matter what it is have you found that we have certainly seen that yes they're highly motivated to eat what they grow and then they're highly motivated to share this food that they grow so it does begin with the growing process in the gardens in the classrooms mm -hmm. and then as we're going to talk today we like to take that food from the gardens and introduce the students to a whole range of topics because that food connects them to their community that food connects them to each other the food is a powerful influencer in getting the kids to rethink about their place in society. You alluded to it, getting food from a school garden into a cafeteria. You would think it would be a simple process. You would think, you know, in many cases, the school garden is 50 feet from the cafeteria on the school grounds. But until maybe around 2010, those gardens might as well have been 500 miles away from the cafeterias because at that time there was no thought to putting school garden produce into the cafeteria. You know, as you can imagine, school kitchens are a highly regulated environment. Mm, right. There's a lot of policies and the policies are there for a good reason. You know, we're feeding kids. Kids are still developing their immune systems. They are potentially a volatile population. And so we need to be careful about the food that comes into the kitchens and how it's prepared. Mm -hmm. Four or five years ago, I kind of ran up against that here in Phoenix. We were trying to do a project at one of our local schools and grow food and harvest it and get it into the kitchen. And, you know, it got shut down. We didn't even get to move forward. So what processes have you put in place to kind of smooth that and, and make that start working? And I'm familiar with what's happening in Arizona because I've consulted with the State Department of Education and Health in Arizona. But for me, it all started in 2010 with Denver Public Schools, the largest school district in the state of Colorado. They had just begun their farm to school program, which is a 
program looking at what local farms are able to supply to school districts to be used in their meal programs. Up to that point, school districts really just ordered their food through their distributor, be it a Cisco or whoever, and just check a bunch of boxes, not even worrying about where that food comes from. Right. But with the farm to school program, we're connecting local farms to the school kitchens. In 2010, we were getting very successful in making those connections to local farms. And the food service director came to me at that time. I was serving as the community partner through Slow Food Denver in finding those connections to local farms. And the director said to me, you know, I'm buying all this food from local farms. And I know you have a whole number of school gardens in the district and they grow lots of food. Is there any way I can get some of that food into the the school kitchen. Of course, I got very excited. Yeah. For many of us, that's the big invitation, you know. Oh, yeah. Get that food in there. So as I started looking around and talking to several people about this, it all really came down to can we overcome the food safety issues around children and volunteers in the gardens growing food to be delivered to a school kitchen that is highly regulated by local health department rules and regulations. And so I did a survey around the country and really could not find another such program happening at the district level. There were some individual school kitchens, private schools, you know, doing it. But I wanted to make this a district-wide program across all 150 schools in Denver. I couldn't find any school resources. So my next best bet was to go to the USDA because I know they have a lot of farm resources, you know, and what is a school garden but a miniature version of a farm. Right. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the GAP and GIP protocols that the USDA have in place, the good agricultural practices and good handling practices practices for farms. I mean, they are a nice checklist of safety protocols on how to grow the food, how to harvest it, and how to transport it. Yeah. Way too many protocols for a school garden, but I was able to whittle down those protocols, you know, from about 80 pages of USDA rules down to six pages for a school garden, just taking the rules and protocols that were most relevant to a school garden setting and wrote that into a set of protocols for Denver Public Schools. They approved it. And in that year, 2010, we launched the first 20 schools that then were able to put school garden produce into the cafeteria. Wow. How cool is that? It kind of left me a little speechless because I, I wasn't quite expecting that you, you know, that it happened that quickly. Well, my description might have been quick, but it was a four to six month process to make that happen. With the government regulations, that's really quick. Well, and I actually got pretty lucky. The local health department that I worked with in Denver, I landed at the desk of a young lady named Danica Lee, and everyone told me that the health department would just shoot this down. They said, no way can kids grow food, harvest food, and deliver it to the school kitchen. Yeah. And when I went to Danica and I said, you know, Danica, I've been asked to develop some protocols so that the kids can do this so that they see that the food that they're growing in their school gardens is healthy and can be served in the cafeteria. First thing Danica said to me was, this is perfect. This is exactly what a public health department should be doing because, you know, our mission is public health. And right. what better way for public health is to get kids to eat fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So I had a great partner in the health department and that really was supporting. And then the food service director wanted it. So he was motivated. So really came down to me, just compile a decent set of protocols mm -hmm. that was not overbearing for the school gardens or the school kitchens. And that kept everybody safe, but it was 
wasn't too restrictive at the same time. Right. These are for Colorado. They were specifically for Denver public schools at that time. Mm -hmm. And then a couple years later, Danica and I took it to the state health department in Colorado and got them to accept Denver's protocols as a template. And now that template sits in every health department in the state of Colorado so that any school district could come to their health department and say, we want to do this. And the health department can say, well, here's what Denver did. You can model your program after Denver. You might have to make a few tweaks because right. we have slightly different rules in this county. But here's a template to get started with. Yeah. And my listeners, I always call Epic when I see it. And knowing the process that that takes to do what you just shared with us, that is truly Epic. I got chills when you were sharing about it. So congratulations. Well, I appreciate that. And other districts around the country have noticed it too. I have shared those protocols with a number of districts around the country, including San Diego, Chicago, Miami, Austin, wow. Texas. And so these are large districts and they have all used the Denver protocols as a template to devise their own protocols. Further epic. I love it. And then we got some nice recognition from the Whole Kids Foundation, the foundation arm of Whole Foods. Right. Received a grant from them a couple years ago to develop a toolkit so that any district in the nation could use this toolkit and the templates that came with the toolkit. So the toolkit comes with five sets of templates from districts like San Diego and Chicago and Austin mm -hmm. and Atlanta. And they could, using the toolkit, go through a series of steps to revise some of the templates into their own set of protocols and then be able to get those approved from their local health department yeah. and then launch the program in their district. So we are now in the pilot phase of this toolkit. I have got three districts, one in Bellingham, Washington, one in Houston, Texas, and the other one in Pittsburgh, California, that are using the toolkit right now to devise their own set of protocols. They should be able to launch their programs sometime this year. We'll finalize the toolkit based upon their feedback, mm -hmm. and we're going to release this toolkit to the public in April at the Farm to Cafeteria Conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. Wow. That's April 2018. 2018. It's like the last weekend in April, the 25th, 26th, yeah. something like that. Wow. And so Whole Kids and Slow Food USA will have the toolkit available on their websites. It'll be free to use. And the grant then will support me to be a, an expert for them. You know, we'll do some webinars, we'll do some office hours and things like that so that school districts can use the toolkit and get my support in getting their protocols done. Wow. Very, very, very cool. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. This has been a labor of love, I can tell. It has been a great journey for close to 17 years, you know, getting the garden started in the schools, developing cooking classes to go with the garden produce that comes from the schools because, you know, slow food, we're all about the food that the gardens produce. And right. so growing it is half the fun, but cooking and eating and sharing it with your friends and teachers is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Programs like Garden and Cafeteria. We also have a youth farmer's market program where kids sell their produce to their local community and learn a little bit about running a small business and how to handle money and inventory and things like that. And then we also have a program called Produce for Pantries where kids can donate produce from school gardens to local pantries and learn about the hungry people in their mm -hmm. community and further reach out and show how this food can have an impact on their community. Cool. And this is all done through Slow Food USA. 
These are programs that Slow Food USA has been developing with the support of the 140, 150 chapters around the country yeah. for ways of just, again, connecting food and community and schools together. The overall drive for all this for Slow Food is we want to create the next generation of healthy eaters in our children, mm -hmm. but we also want to create the next advocates for a healthy food system. And I really believe that yeah. if we give the kids the knowledge, the skills, and the confidence of how to handle food, that they will become the next leaders in helping us get a healthy food system with food that's available to everybody. Nice. So one thing, and I've got a curveball I'm going to throw at you here. You mentioned GIP-GAP training or GAP-GIP training. That's good handling practices, good agricultural practices. We actually had Stuart Jacobson from the Arizona Department of Agriculture on show number 67. So you can go back and listen about GIP-GAP training. I actually went through the GIP-GAP training. It was a two-day training. I'm going to say about four years ago, it was really really good to jump in and learn that kind of stuff. Have you been through that? I have not been through the formal training. I'm a very good friend of Stuart. I've known Stuart for a number of years. We connected over the Garden Cafeteria program because he called me up one day knowing that we had these protocols in Denver and he was advising the Arizona Department of Health on their own protocols. And so we've become friends. We've traveled to conferences together. Cool. Stuart, if you're out there, hello. <laughs> I owe you a phone call. <laughs> Stuart is a great resource for you yes. all to have. I've read through the Gap and Get protocol so many times that I feel I know them and probably could execute them at mm -hmm. some point, but I've never been through a training. Yeah. And the reason I did the training was I'm not a farmer per se. I'm a hobby farmer and what I do every day is I educate, but I wanted to sit through the Gip Gap training to see what it was all about. And I learned a lot of things about food safety that, you know, it was presented. And it's like, wow. So I'm going to say, if you have an opportunity to go through Gip Gap training, you know, it's usually free or very inexpensive in your area. Go look it up. It's through the USDA. Your listeners should also know that while Gap and Gip is offered by the USDA, it's the states that decide whether it's mandatory or not Yes, for your state. And, you know, right Right now in the state of Colorado, it's not mandatory, but it's highly advisable to go through the training because you do learn a lot about food safety. And for me, it's especially relevant. My wife and I, we bought a 17 acre farm last year and we're coming up to our first growing season wow. and we'll be doing a small market farm with the CSA program and classes. Mm -hmm. And so knowing the gap in GIP has certainly been helpful in our planning here on this farm too. Exactly. So here's the curveball. I want you to think back over your work for the past five, six, seven, eight years since you started working on this project. And is there one person or one school or one project that when you think about it, it moves you? It's just like, it's the, this is why I'm doing this work. I've had a lot of fun with this work and seeing some of those successes. But one that comes to mind immediately is in Jefferson County School District, which is the district right next to Denver. Uh -huh. They wanted to serve local meat in their cafeteria. And, you know, animal protein tends to be a little bit more expensive than produce. And so it took us a while to find a good source for it. But there's a chicken producer in the state of Colorado. And when you're producing chicken, the one piece of the bird that tends not to sell very well are the drumsticks. Mm. And so they were producing a lot of chickens, but the number of drumsticks kept on increasing in their freezers. They couldn't find a good market for the drumsticks. Well, it 
just happens that the drumstick is a perfect size to serve to children. Of course. In the school lunch program because yeah. they, they need to get two ounces of meat, according to the USDA, and the drumstick delivers that. I was very excited to make that partnership between Jefferson County and the local meat producer. And once a month, the district, which feeds close to 40, 50,000 students, would buy all the drumsticks that the producer had once a month and serve it to the children. Uh huh. So this was a great boon for the meat producer because they could empty their freezers. The district was able to say, we're buying local meat. Yeah. I was at the first day that they served this chicken. The district chef had come up with a recipe for barbecue sauce that met all the USDA dietary standards. Uh-huh. We were there in the school cafeteria watching the children just loving the barbecue chicken, you know, barbecue sauce ear to ear. Uh-huh. But it also happened to be picture day that day in the school. Oh, my gosh. The cute little boys and girls were all dressed up in their Sunday best, ready for pictures. So there was always a scramble to make sure that the kids were cleaned up Oh yes. after lunch. And the next day, the principal of the school was getting phone calls from the parents saying, why did you ruin picture day with this barbecue chicken? And the principal would answer back, said, well, we feel we didn't ruin the day, but now you have a photo memory of the very first day that local meat was served in our school district and we're out of of that. Yeah. I was very happy to be part of that. Nice. So if there's a student, a teacher, a parent out there that is interested in implementing something like this at their local school, what are their first steps? Well, it's a lengthy process. And as you can imagine, school districts have, you know, a chain of command. You know, the school meals in a typical public school system are managed by a food service department. And so anything concerning the school kitchens need to go through the food service department. These days, they tend to have parent committees that are advising them on on healthy standards Mm -hmm. and innovation and things. And so I would check first with your district's food service department to see if they have a parent council. They often have a student council if your son or daughter wants to get involved. But make friends with your food service department. See where they are right now with what we call the farm to school programs. Are they supporting school gardens? Are they supporting education in the classroom around healthy food? Are they buying from local farms? Really find out what they're doing right now and say, I'd like to support you. I like to, you know, bring my resources to your program and to see what we can do. The idea is you want to be a partner to them. You know, you don't want to come in there and demand things right away, but you want to find ways that you can support the growth of these programs Mm -hmm. in the overall program. And then you'll have a better chance of seeing some of these programs get started, too. Beautiful. And this toolkit that you're developing that will be available in April of 2018, we'll have a link for it on the show notes page when it is available. Yeah, we're officially launching it at a farm to cafeteria conference at the end of April, and it will become then a public resource. Both the Whole Kids Foundation and Slow Food USA websites will have links available on how to get copies of it and how to become part of what we're calling the Garden to Cafeteria community, which will be school districts and garden leaders working together to get these programs started in districts around the country. Excellent. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. This has been really informative. I love it. Thank you. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, I don't like the word failure. Neither do I, so... (laughs) 
But I do recognize pivots, and we often have to pivot in the direction that we're going. You know, I, I mentioned that I had a PhD. I followed that academic track for a while into the mid-90s. I was at the University of Pittsburgh as a postdoctoral fellow working in a psychology lab. I thought I had a five-year appointment, but year two, the professor who owned the lab left for California. My wife was pregnant with our son. We just couldn't leave Pittsburgh. She was also a medical resident. And so I had to give up my academic career. And the thing that always spoke to me was food. So I went back to my culinary roots and took that pivot and developed some culinary skills there in Pittsburgh so that when we landed in Denver, mm -hmm. I was able to continue to pursue my culinary. And that culinary led me to slow food and the school gardens. I'm not necessarily cooking in restaurants right now. I have been cooking in school kitchens. I have been you know, helping them with menu changes and training their staff on scratch cooking. Mm -hmm. And it was disappointing to leave the academic career, but it happened for a reason. And it led me to this point and I couldn't be happier. Nice, so no failures, but pivots. Pivots. Yeah. Always pivot. You know, you can always use your skills somehow. And, and all those grant writing skills and evaluation skills that I learned in grad school mm -hmm. as a PhD student, I'm now applying to slow food and writing grants and yeah. doing evaluation of programs. So it was a very logical pivot for me. Yeah. Interesting. So the middle 15 years of my life, I was in technology. I bought a Macintosh computer in 1984 and ran an Apple authorized training center here in Phoenix and a software company. And after I went back to school in 1999 and graduated, I moved back to food, back to farming. And that 15 year period, it wasn't a waste. It was a learning experience for me to learn the technology that I now use every day today. Exactly. Yeah. Those are never wasted skills. It's never a waste of your mental abilities to, you know, do grad school or whatever kind of activities you're in, because it will always connect back to where you are now. Yeah. And I love how we share that food background. I think a lot of people return to food yep. when they're given the chance. And that's what I love so much about working in food programs. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I've been talking a lot about slow food, and we are an international organization, but we are small. And really, the brunt of the programs are run by local chapters. And Slow Food Denver, where we did most of this work with Denver Public Schools, there were only three or four of us in Slow Food Denver that really led these programs. And we were all volunteers. No one was getting paid. So for 12 years as an unpaid volunteer and assisted by a couple other slow food volunteers, uh -huh. we were able to change the food culture in the two largest school districts in the state of Colorado, affecting over 150,000 kids. Yeah. If that doesn't speak of the success of a small grassroots team and program mm -hmm. having an impact on large institutions, that's what gets me excited. So I consider that a huge success and I hope motivates other people. You know, you may be small, you may not be getting paid for this, but if you've got the passion and the drive, you can make substantial changes in the institution that you choose to work with. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Epic. You know, that's really what it takes. I'm a big, big believer of grassroots change. We go out and do the work that we do every day to plant the seeds to create change into the future. 
Exactly. And seeing that change happen is the reward that makes it all come together. Yeah. Being a volunteer also allowed me to be very flexible. You know, I was working with school administrators and school food service directors and other people that had a job and they were restricted to the limitations of their job. Me as a volunteer, I could pick and choose which direction I wanted to go in and I had no restrictions. And so I was able to get a lot of work done in places where other people would be restricted and going. I think that showed and added to the just overall success of the programs. Oh, I'm sure it did. So what drives you? Well, I thought a lot about this question and really it comes down to being a parent. You know, once you are blessed to have some children of your own, you want the best for them. Mm -hmm. You know, they are your focus in life. And so, you know, when my children came along, I thought I was cooking good food for them. I thought I was using good ingredients. But at that time, I didn't know anything about slow food. And I was more of a coupon shopper than I was of, you know, where is this food coming from? As I got to learn more about slow food and wanted better food for my family, I started creating these programs and and others that connected us to the local foods and the farmers and the people that were growing healthy food. Everything that I've been doing now, I've been able to do this for my children and I want other families to have the same opportunities. Everything in the schools that we do is for all the kids, you know, not just for one school, but we're changing the food culture for the whole school district so that all families can benefit from these changes. Beautiful. Thank you for that. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I'm sure I'm not the first one to nominate this book, but the book that had the greatest impact on my development as a slow food leader was Omnivore's Dilemma by Mike. Uh-huh. You know, at the time I read it, we had just moved from Iowa. I thought we were growing food in Iowa. And after reading that book, I discovered, no, we are growing commodities in our state. I made a huge pivot after reading that book, you know, as far as getting rid of certain things for my diet and wanting and working really hard to connect myself up with the farmers and ranchers that were producing healthy food. I think the book's now about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. It's still relevant. Very. I just spoke at a book club of people that just read the book for the first time. And that was last month. We had a great discussion about the book and then these programs in the schools and what else Slow Food is doing in their community. I think it's a great starting book to get involved in your local food systems. It's a easy read and it's, it's still very compelling to this day. Yeah. It's a good one. That is for sure. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? As an active parent in the school food system, I started out as the angry parent. I was angry at the school district. I was angry at the school kitchens because here I am growing food in the school gardens with kids, but I wasn't allowed to use this food in the school. I got a lot of press. I was quoted in the papers and things, but I was making no progress. I was not getting into the inner circle that I needed to get into. So my piece of advice is do not go into this work as an angry parent or as an angry person. Yeah. Go into this work as I want to be your partner. I can bring you resources. I want to help you where you want to go. And I'm talking, you know, I'm now talking to the food service directors. And once I made that pivot and became the partner parent to the school district, then I made a lot of progress. I've been advising a number of parents on this path. Anger doesn't get you in. Being a partner will get you in and allow you to see success. And that can be applied most everywhere in our lives, can it not? I've used that in so many different ways. Yeah. Trying to be the best partner out there, give more than 
than I asked for, all those things that people will want to work with you. You know, we all bring new ideas and new skill sets to any problem that we want to solve. And if we all find ways to work together, there's a greater chance for success. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. It's been my pleasure, Greg. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I have it on my subscription list. And thank you for all the work that you are doing to get the word out about local foods and the way people can get involved. Absolutely. Thank you for the kudos. I appreciate it. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, best way is right now through Slow Food. Okay. My email address I'm happy to share is andrew at slowfoodusa.org. Perfect. The Slow Food website is www.slowfoodusa.org. It mentions all the things that we are doing. I hope you can come to Denver. You can actually meet me in person in July. Slow Food USA is having their second annual Slow Food Nations event in July. Yep. July 13th through 15th in Denver. It's a three-day food festival of all things slow food. I will be putting on a workshop around school garden resources at that event. Beautiful. I think I'm going to have another one of your team members on the podcast talking about that. I hope so. I won't share many more details then. <laughs> Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash slow food USA. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. As listeners to our podcast, you know that I love experimenting. And as urban farmers and gardeners, I can predict that you probably have done your fair share of experiments with new seed varieties. But if you are as busy as I am, sometimes just finding new seeds is a challenge. Well, what if someone else did the work for you? I'd like to introduce you to Seed Bank Box, an excellent source of non-GMO and heirloom seeds delivered right to your door. Each month, you will receive 8 to 10 surprise seed varieties with information for each seed on a card you'll keep. It's time to start experimenting again. Let Seed Bank Box help you plant the garden of your dreams. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash seedbankbox for more information and to sign up. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.